You know, when I was in uh, seminary, taking Greek classes and learning the, those, those languages, I had a seminary professor who was seeking to encourage us in our studies, seeking to provide hope for us in, this, in the task, of the daunting task of learning not just another language, but what is effectively a dead language in many ways, though Greek obviously still exists today. It's much different than it was in, the, in Bible times. He told us that what we could expect was that we would be living in a constant state of fog, that there would be a heavy fog surrounding all these concepts, all these things that we're trying to learn as we're seeking to understand the grammar of, of how things work, and even we're learning new vocabulary, and I'm not talking about the Greek vocabulary, just the grammar vocabulary of what is a declension, and, and what are these different cases, and what is, what is dative, and what is genitive, and what is accusative, like what are all these different terms? We're living in this constant state of fog as we're trying to grasp these concepts. His encouragement to us was just keep moving forward. As you move forward, the fog will move with you. And at the time, it's just like, oh, that's supposed to encourage me here, prophet? Like, how is that supposed to be an encouragement? Well, what his encouragement was is that as we moved forward, as we continued to wrestle with new concepts, yes, the fog would move with you and, and you would struggle with the concepts of wherever you were, but there would get to a place where as you looked backwards at older concepts that you had been studying, that as you're studying these new concepts, those would begin to come increasingly clear as you moved forward. So though the fog would move with you through the journey, as you looked back, you could see with more clarity what was behind. The process of simply moving forward moved the fog with us, and so we gained clarity with our hindsight of what was looking behind. So even though it felt like we were living and studying through a perpetual fog, when we looked back, we could say, hey, you know what? I actually have made progress here. That other thing that I struggled with, that concept that was just so puzzling to me three weeks ago, I get it. I don't know when it clicked, but, but as I look back, I get it now. Simply moving forward, moved the fog along to where the fog wasn't over those concepts any longer. It was over these other things over here, and it was a rolling process. I think sometimes we can feel that way with just with everyday living, with everyday life. There are seasons of life that we walk through, and it just feels like we're just drifting in a dense fog. We don't know up from down, but but so often the case is that as we continue to move forward in our lives, we can look back and reflect upon where we've been and where God has led us through, and we can see areas of our life that, that were painful, that we struggled through, and yet we can see more clearly the things that God was doing within our lives to strengthen us, the things that God was doing to shape us, to challenge us, and that shape us into the people that we are today. In many ways, that process is what we see unfolding for us in the book of Ruth. We have a story of individuals, Naomi, Boaz, Ruth, 
And in many ways, as you just read the story, it seems that these are just individuals just living their lives. They're trying to get by. They're trying to survive. Especially in the early portions of the book, we see that there's, some, there's a darkness over the events that are unfolding. There's a painful fog over Naomi's life as she considers the, the pain that she is enduring. But as the story advances and as the story moves along, we get to a place where we can look back and see, oh, that's, that's what God was, was doing. That's what His providence was orchestrating together as we got to this point over here. It was painful. The journey was painful, but God brought it about and was accomplishing His purposes through the journey. Ever since the month of February, we have been, dare I say, dare I use the word drudging through the book of Judges, where we've, we've, we've gone through this book and we have seen the, in many ways, like sad and depressing book, a, a sad story of what happens when a people as a whole rejects the word of the Lord. Well, my hope is that as we go into this brief foray into this book of Ruth, that it will be a breath of fresh air to us as we see how God is, is providentially preserving His people and providentially caring over the lives of His people and accomplishing His purposes, and we will have a, a breath of fresh air as we study this book of Ruth. A few things to say by, inter- by way of introduction to the book itself. Ruth is a very unique book in the Old Testament canon. It's one of only two books named after a, a Gentile and one of only two books named after a woman. So Ruth really is in rare company. As we try to place the, the timing of the events historically, the beginning of the book of Ruth states that this is during the time of the Judges. So think about everything that we know from having studied the book of the Judges, all the events that unfolded there, and, and what Israel was like during that time of the people increasingly becoming more and more like the Gentile world around her, the book of Ruth fits into that timeline somewhere. And we don't know particularly where within the book of Judges it fits. We don't have much by way of clues to give us that kind of specificity. But we do know that it is during the time of the judges and during a time, at the beginning of the book, it's during a time of one of God's judgments and we see really a cycle almost coming to completion within the book of Ruth as there is a time of prosperity after the judgments. According to tradition, Samuel is the one who wrote both the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. In the book of Judges, there is a stress for the need for the king, right? That's what we were hammering home time and time again as we were walking through the book. That there is a dearth of leadership within Israel. There's a need for a godly king. And the book of Judges was written at a time by Samuel as a polemic in the land to say, hey, we need a godly king seeking to be a polemic establishing David as that godly king in the land, that man after God's own heart. So that's how Judges was, was functioning at that time. Well, in a similar vein, the book of Ruth would serve to be the, the story of how God providentially preserved the line from which David would come. 
and it demonstrates the piousness of his family in a time when there was no piety in the land of Israel, further establishing David as the rightful king in the land. So, what we find, therefore, as we study this book, it is a book about God's divine providence. The people in the story, in many ways, I, I mentioned this before, but again, just, they're just living their lives. They're trying to get by. They're trying to survive in a time when there was trouble within the lands. But it is clear that God is guiding and directing, even through the hardships, and the characters of the story all, all, all express a profound faith in the Lord along the way. And there's much to be learned from their experience. I do want to take a moment and, and just spend a few moments on interpretive method as we just think about how we should be reading Old Testament text. I, we did this when we were reading the book of Judges. It's always helpful to review these things. Whenever we encounter an Old Testament book, especially narrative, there is a, there's a tendency in many interpreters and, those, and students of Scripture to attempt to make everything to be what is called a type of Christ. And we saw this in the book of Judges, and we talked about a few examples along the way as we walked through the book of Judges as this individual, that individual, the types of Christ, etc. And I gave us a few examples of individuals who did this in a way that was even shocking to us. Well, I want to provide for us another example of, of something that someone sent to me even just this week, an example someone sent me of how this can so often be the approach of many interpreters. Think for a moment the story of Noah. There's the flood, the ark, they're preserved through the ark, they step off. What's one of the first things that Noah d- does after he gets off the ark? He, he, there's a sacrifice unto the Lord, there's the rainbow, God's promise. Well, then what does Noah go and do? He builds a vineyard, he has the grapes, he makes some wine, the dude gets hammered, right? Like that's That's the story that we have. Well, listen to this commentary on that text from the book of Genesis. Quote, Noah bears an image or type of Christ. Let us now see how it can be illustrated from his drunkenness. An inebriated Noah fell asleep, and Christ died, just as death is so often called sleep in the sacred writings. Moreover, it is easy to understand by what potion Christ would have been inebriated, for it was undoubtedly of that cup that he spoke of in the very moment of his passion, let this cup pass from me. Wow, right? That's, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Like, that's like, are you serious? Like, we're going to say that, that Noah, in his drunken stupor, that that is a type of Christ. Are we really going to say that? Well, what is it that makes that so ridiculous? Why is that so far out of the question for us? Why do we have this laughing response at, at, at that thing? What, what is it that makes it so far-fetched? As we think about this and we try to think about, let's, let's be consistent as we study Old Testament texts There are other characters in the Old Testament that people have looked to that, you know, they don't quite sound so far-fetched when we think about them as potential types of Christ. Think of Joseph. 
Both Joseph and Jesus, they both spent time in Egypt. Both of them were sold for silver. Both of them, through their abuse, provided salvation to the world. Is Joseph a type of Christ? And bringing all this up, because another example that many individuals state is, even within the book of Ruth itself, Boaz. Boaz, he is the kinsman redeemer, right? There's this redemption that occurs right here. He cares for outsiders like the Gentile Ruth, just as Christ will care for everyone who comes to faith in Him, not just for Jews, but Gentiles as well. So is He, therefore, a type? There's a little bit of a, a temptation here to make this a sermon about typology, and I'm trying to not not focus so much on that, but, but this is something that we do need to discuss when we talk about interpreting Old Testament texts. What is a type? In short, the word type, it comes from the Greek word typos, which can refer to something that resembles or corresponds to another thing. So a type is intended to prefigure what is called the antitype, or the thing that the what the type is supposed to be pointing towards or resembling or corresponding to. Scripture refers to a number of, to a couple of people or feasts, uh, elements within the tabernacle. It refers to different things as types, and if we had time, we would walk through all those things and talk about how they are types according to the Word of God. But for now, the question that we have to grapple with is this. Are there more types in Scripture than what Scripture itself identifies as a type? And if so, what is the criteria for how we would identify those things? Is mere resemblance, is mere, are mere parallels sufficient to say this is a type? I'm going to argue for us that part of what makes something a type is the prophetic element of the type, that there is something within the type itself that, that is anticipating something, that looks forward to something, and that is prophetic towards the antitype. And so, though there, there are many things in Scripture that contain parallels and, or could be examples of or even illustrate something about Jesus Christ, I don't think that necessarily makes them a formal type the way the New Testament uses the word type. Because the prophetic intent of the thing would be missing. I think there has to be clues about the prophetic intent of the thing itself. So the question then becomes, where do we draw the line? How do we know if something is prophetic? Should we read the Old Testament always looking for these different shadows and types and trying to find the parallels? Should we be willing to stretch to make stories like Noah or several of the judges become types? I'm going to suggest for us this morning that the only safeguard against being able to label anything and everything as a type of Christ is to let Scripture itself identify who or what is a type of Christ and leave it at that. 
if we go any other direction, it becomes subjective about what the criteria is and how legitimate any individual type may or may not be. Are there ways that we can draw parallels between other characters and Christ? Absolutely, and there are many parallels even between men like Boaz and Christ. We may even call them illustrations or examples of what Christ would later do, but I'm going to stop short of calling them types and giving them that label unless Scripture itself identifies them as such. And this is, all of this is because I am, I'm seeking to, to do what is called employing a, a consistent grammatical, historical, and contextual hermeneutic that the Scripture would instruct for us, understanding this, sometimes this is called a normal hermeneutic, sometimes it's called a literal hermeneutic, and I realize I'm kind of spending a little bit of extra time on this this morning, but I felt the need to do so simply because of how often this passage of Scripture is turned into typology and we lose what the original author is intending for us to see by simply turning everything into a type. And so a consistent grammatical, historical, a contextual approach to understanding this Scripture will seek to lead what is the author's original intent. Did he intend for this to be typology or... Is there something else going on in the text? And the reality is that Scripture never refers to Boaz as a type, never makes any effort to connect the two characters either formally or thematically. In the New Testament, the only other reference in the New Testament to any of the characters or the events of the book of Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew and Luke. Now that may lead us to ask this question, and this will conclude this section of our introduction. If we're not going to see Boaz as a type of Christ, does that strip the book of Ruth of its meaning and its significance for us as New Testament believers? And the answer to that question emphatically is no, absolutely not. This, this by no means removes the significance and the beauty and the applicability of the book of Ruth. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, including the Old Testament book of Ruth. But the original author had a purpose in writing Ruth. And as we seek to understand that through employing the consistent grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic, we will learn from this book We not only get to glean the principles that are at play within this book, but we also get to see that while I don't necessarily believe that Boaz is a type of Christ, the book does anticipate Christ, and it does point us to Christ by showing us God's providential care over His people and His providential care over the line through which Christ would eventually come. So with that, let's read Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, 
he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited her people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went, with, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning 
of barley harvest. Our story opens during the time of the judges. No famine is mentioned in the book of Judges itself, so we can't place again the story exactly when this was. Only that we can note that it was during a time between the judges, between times of reform, between the times when the people were obedient to the Lord. This is during a time of disobedience when there was judgment in the land. When we were going through the book of Judges, we saw that God, the way God brought judgment in Judges was through military oppression. It was through the sword as as the Canaanites would conquer them and bring them into subjection underneath them. But in God's law, in the law of Moses, God made a, a promise with the people that there would be various forms of judgment that could come against them. The sword was one, disease was one, and famine is another. And we see that God is faithful to that promise and brought about this form of of judgment upon a rebellious people here. The author, though, doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on the judgment aspect of this, only recognizes, hey, there's a famine in the land and the reader is left to infer, oh, God's judgment is upon the people. This is a consistent theme whenever famine arises that it is a statement of God's judgments. Well, because of the famine, we have this man, his name is Elimelech, and his wife Naomi, they seek better fortune, and so they travel to the land of Moab. They load up their caravan, and they make their way to the land, really, of their cousins. This is this, the, the, the people of Moab were a relative people to the people of Israel. They are related to one another. And really, at this point of the story, any Israelite listener listening to this, their ears would be perked up and they would be on the edge of their seats already because A, there's a famine, God's judgments, and B, going to the land of Moab. The Israelites didn't exactly have a positive history with the people of Moab. These were peoples in conflict with one another. Even though they were related, even though they were family, In a sense, the people of Moab were the descendants of one of of the sons of Lot that he fathered through the incestuous relationship with his own daughter. So these are a related people to the people of Israel, but even so, they did not get along with one another. In fact, uh, there's the story of the people of Israel as they are leaving Egypt and going through the wilderness. They wanted to pass through the land of Moab, and the king of Moab said, eh, no, it ain't happening. You're not coming through here. I don't trust you. But because they are related, God forbade the people of Israel from going to war with the Moabites. But here they are, Fleeing to Moab, and that can only mean one thing, things must have been desperate. Things must have been desperate. Tensions were always high between the two people groups, so for the family to move to Moab would be a sign of just how desperate things were within the lands. But there they are. They find themselves in the land of Moab. While they are there, the two children married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But now we see the, the a crisis begin to develop within the lives of our characters. 
First, we see Elimelech. He dies. And then ten years in, we see that all three men have died. And there's no grandchildren. There's no more men within the family. The husband dies, the two men die, and all we have left are Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. In our day, we think of, of widows, and we might think of it as a, as a tragic thing and a very devastating thing, but hey, there's no children to care for. They, go ahead, go get a job, and you can care for yourself. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's different ways to, to support your, yourself and your family and such, but, but in these times, this is truly a devastating reality. A devastating reality without the, without the husband, without, without children, without sons to care for a widowed mother, this family is left vulnerable and would have been struggling to get by. And so this led, leads to Naomi's decision, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to return home. It's bad enough to be a widow, I'm going to be a widow in in a foreign land amongst the, the Moabites. No, I'm, I need to return home. It's time to go back home. The narrator notes for us in verse 6 that it says, the Lord had visited her people and given them food. So the famine is over. Right? Naomi hears this. Okay, we have good news. Finally, there's food in the land of Israel. I'm going home. There's nothing for me here in the land of Moab. There's nothing left for me here. It's time for me to go home. And this is the, again, this, the theme of divine providence is, is introduced and developed through this statement that the Lord had visited her people. God was providentially providing the food. Well, as Naomi seeks to return home, her daughters-in-law, they, they want to come with her, but she declines that and instructs them, you know what, look, I can't have any more sons for you. And even if I did, are you really going to wait until they're of marriable age? No, you need to go and you need to go get married to someone else amongst your own people. Go and return home and find solace there. Notice the grief of Naomi in this text. Naomi is a grief-stricken woman. Look at verse 13. She says in the latter, the latter portion of that verse, No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is grief-stricken. She is crushed by the events that have unfolded. She, she sees the providence of God, but, but not in such a way that, that guides her through the valley of the shadow of death, but rather sees Him as the one who has brought these things, not just into her life, but against her in her life. That's how she interprets the crisis. She, she looks at these offenses and says, oh, God is out to get me here. He's brought these things against me. If you skip down to verse 19, you see that even more. She says, okay, it says, The two of them went on till they came to the Bethlehem, and when they came there, the whole town was stirred because of them. So the people said, oh, 
is this Naomi? They, it's been 10 years since she's been back. They, is that Naomi? Has she really come back? And Naomi says, I've come back, but I've not. I am not Naomi anymore. The name Naomi means pleasant. It's a beautiful name. Naomi, pleasant. But she says, no, do not call me that. My life has been anything but pleasant. Call me Mara. That name Mara means bitter. She says, call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She says, I went away full and now I'm coming back empty. And she attributes this to the Lord. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi? Why would you call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? There's a, there's a, a twisting of themes in the midst of this as, Mara looks, as, as Naomi looks at these things and she says, look, I, I went away because of, of famine, so you, you might say, oh, I went away empty, I went away hungry. Well, now there's food, I can come back and have food again, but she flips it around and says, no, I went away full. It doesn't matter if I had food, I at least had my family. And now I'm coming back, and sure, there's food in the land, but I am, I am empty now. I've lost my husband. I've lost my boys. Do not call me pleasant. My life has not been pleasant. As I picture her expressing these sentiments, I can just hear the bitterness even expressing in her own words. Do not call me nail. the reality of God's providence. She still acknowledges the, how He is over all things, and yet she She doesn't see this as something that God overseeing these things in a positive way. You know, she, she almost blames God for these events and believes that God is, is against her and has brought these things as some form of judgment even into her life in a personal way. She is grief-stricken and heartbroken. And yet, even in the midst of, of these events, as we have seen these things unfold, we, there is a, a ray of hope, an array of, of sunshine, even in the midst of this darkness that we find in the person of Ruth. Because the reality is, is that even though Naomi has lost 
her husband, and she has lost her sons. She says, I'm coming home empty, but that's not quite entirely true because she does have Ruth. She does have Ruth who has pledged her life to Naomi's. Naomi did intend to return home alone. She did intend to return home apart from anyone else. But Ruth insisted upon returning with her. And not only that, but she pledges her life to Naomi. And in a stunning display of faith, she confesses Yahweh as the one true God and commits to following Him and Him alone. I will go where you go. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. And if you don't, may God curse me. Her loyalty, her faith, her determination, all admirable traits in the life of Ruth. And so she leaves Moab, she leaves the, her, her family, she leaves her people and comes to live with Naomi in Bethlehem. And the remarkable thing that we will see as this book begins to unfold is that through that decision, God, was, God is going to providentially bring about a godly king for Israel and eventually the Messiah. Jesus Christ is going to come through this line. And so as we even pause there and, and bring our time together for, to a close this morning and we reflect upon what can we learn even from this chapter here, we recognize that we do have the benefit of knowing more of the story. We are familiar with the book of Ruth and familiar with how things are going to unfold. We know where it's going. We know how it ends. But in this moment within the book, Naomi doesn't. Naomi doesn't know. She is living her life. She's trying to survive as she walks through the valley of the shadow of death. She's living in the fog. She doesn't know why God has providentially brought these hardships into her life. All she knows is that it hurts. I think many of us can relate to that. Our circumstances are going to be different from hers. Our pain is going to be different. But the fog is still there. And it still hurts. What I would like for us to consider today as we conclude our time is even through the pain, God was providentially ordering the life of Naomi in order to bring about His purposes within her life. If we track through the story, in God's providence, there was a famine in the land. In God's providence, Elimelech moved his family to Moab. In God's providence, Naomi's sons got married to Moabite women. In God's providence, Naomi's sons and her husband all die. In God's providence, the famine ended. And in God's providence, Naomi returns home, but not alone. She returns home with Ruth. 
She is not as empty as she feels like she is. She has Ruth, and in God's providence, God is going to bring about the royal line through this Gentile woman that has come back to Israel with Naomi, and eventually the Savior of all the world is going to be born in the same city where Naomi now lives. And it is all because of God's providence in these events. Without the famine, Naomi is never in Moab. Without her husband and her sons dying, she never returns home. Ruth never returns home. Ruth never meets Boaz. We don't always know where the story of our lives is going. We don't always know how we fit into the larger story of what God is doing in the world. But God is doing amazing things. And sometimes we do walk through the valley. Sometimes we do walk through the fog. But if we keep our eyes upon Jesus Christ keep our eyes knowing that God is providentially over all things. There will be a day, and it may not even be here on this earth, but there will be a day when we will be able to look back at all the things that God has brought us through, and we can marvel at all the amazing things that God has done. Because God, in His providence, is accomplishing His purposes within our lives, even when we can't see it. Sometimes it's used flippantly, and sometimes it's used in a dismissive way. But we have the text of Scripture in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That should never be used to try to diminish someone's pain, but it should be a source of hope for us. That God is providentially overseeing all things. And that though we, we can't see it, though we don't know exactly what He is doing, the story isn't complete. God is bringing these things about and, and His purposes are going to be accomplished. And it will all work together for good. In future weeks, we will see some of the good that was brought about in the life of Naomi, in the life of Ruth, in the life of these individuals. We're going to see the royal line come about through this. But for today, I want us to reflect upon recognizing that our story isn't complete. God's story isn't complete. And we don't know where it's moving, but we can still look back and see His hand of providence And rest in knowing the character and the nature of our God. Now, we don't have to view it as Naomi did, that that God is against us, but can see His sovereign providence as His blessing upon us. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for for you and your word. Thank you for this book of Ruth. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to 
to consider your divine providence, to rest in your providence, to know that you are working all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We rejoice in knowing your character and your nature, that you are a good and loving God, that nothing is done apart from your hand. Help us to trust in you, knowing that though we sometimes live in the fog and we do not know where our story is going, we know that it is not outside of your providence. May we rest in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.